Well, if you'll turn in your Bible again to 2 Peter <clears throat> chapter 1 and verse 7 tonight. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 7. We've been studying together the fruit of the Spirit that is uh, to be a part of our Christian lives. And we've been focusing on the fruit of love of the last couple Sundays, uh, kind of, if you will, um, shall we say, borrowing from Paul to pay Peter, <laughs> the reverse of what you usually hear. Um, we've, been, we've been looking at love, especially sometimes as Paul defines it uh, in Corinthians. So uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 7, let's, uh, let's pray. Lord, we are sinners. Uh, we fail every day in words, thoughts, and deeds. We are a people uh, who have no inherent righteousness that is native to us, but we are dependent on grace to bear the fruit of what we see in our text. We need this grace and pray for this grace and pray for the putting on of Christ and putting off of our old nature. We need your grace and help tonight, not only in the hearing, but the applying of the scriptures. Help us, Lord, as we focus on this uh, most important fruit. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Verse 7, chapter 1, 2 Peter. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've been talking about love, and we were um, discussing how love is contrary to pride. Love is uh, not to be arrogant. Uh, arrogance is a disposition of, of attitude or character, boys and girls. Uh, it is a spirit of pride. I can give you some examples uh, in the Bible that are contrary to love. For example, King Herod, you'll remember, uh, accepted the praise of men, that he was a god and not a man. And for that uh, reason, God smote him because of his pride. King Nebuchadnezzar as well also had to be humbled by God uh, because he boasted in the things that he felt he himself had built, not realizing that the kingdom he had was actually given to him by God and, and by God's grace. And so Nebuchadnezzar ate grass for a period of seven years until he learned this lesson. Jesus told us of the parable of the Pharisee at the temple who was arrogant. He boasted in his own accomplishments and in his own righteousness, but Jesus tells us that he went home unjustified. He, he was not right with God. Uh, if anybody was right with God, it was the publican, the tax collector in the back who was crying out to God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Uh, and he was the one, Jesus said, that went home righteous because he was relying on the righteousness of Christ imputed to him. The Corinthians, Paul tells us, were not acting in a loving manner and were acting arrogantly because they tolerated sin. They should have been mourning 
the uh, egregious sin that existed. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, he said, There is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind that does not exist even among the Gentiles, that is, even among the non-Christians, that someone has his father's wife. That was probably his stepmother uh, rather than his biological mother, but nevertheless, a scandal in the community. And Paul said, you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead. So they were acting as a church contrary to love by not disciplining this man and tolerating this sin. Our culture says that, it's, that if you're loving, you'll be tolerant of all kinds of sexual immorality. But Paul is saying the opposite here. He says, so that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. They needed to discipline him in order to correct this situation. And because they wouldn't correct it, or, well, they do correct it. We read in the next letter to the Corinthians that they did correct it. And now Paul's saying, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, okay, now he's up. He's repented. You know, don't, don't uh, go overboard on the discipline lest the man despair. Uh, so, but anyway, at the time of the first letter, they were acting contrary to love. The sons of Korah were acting contrarily to love. They had become arrogant towards Moses and Aaron, and they were leading a rebellion in the wilderness. And so God caused the ground to open up under the sons of Korah and on, under the uh, feet of their family and their tents, and they were swallowed alive. The Bible says that it was pride and arrogance that contributed to the fall of the devil. He was, boys and girls, he was not created an evil being. He was a holy and innocent uh, and righteous angel in the beginning, uh, but yet he fell into pride and transgression. Some suspect that the devil, this was Edward's view, that the devil thought he should sit at the right hand of the Father, and that the, the idea of a man uh, sitting at the right hand of the Father uh, was repugnant to his pride. We don't know for certain, but it's an interesting theory that Edwards puts out there. But how do we uh, apply the, this principle of promoting love in humility? Well, first of all, we should seek to love in humility by serving. Jesus tells us here that true Christian service uh, is found in Jesus Christ. He said, who is greater uh, at the table, the person who is sitting at the table or the person serving and Jesus said, well, ordinarily, it's the person seated at the table. But yet, Jesus said, yet here I am, uh, your master, and yet I'm serving you. I'm washing the feet of the disciples. He was demonstrating them how to love uh, through, through service. The Bible says that we should seek to be the least and not the greatest. The disciples struggled with that. They were arguing who among them was the best. Arrogance wants to be first. But the Bible says that we should make it our ambition to be last. I had a friend, he's a PCA minister in Mississippi, and uh, one of the phrases he used to like to say to me is, I'm aiming for obscurity. <laughs> he was seeking uh, not to be first, but, uh, but to be serving such in such a way that he's actually a very obscure person. Uh, the Bible says, consider others uh, more important than yourself. Proverbs 27.2, let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. 
And the Bible also says that we should consider the incarnation of Jesus Christ, his suffering and his death. He is very God of God. And yet, what does he do? He becomes a man, and not just any man, but he becomes a servant, humbling himself even to the point of death, and even death on an ignoble cross in order to save us. And so we are called as Christians to follow Jesus Christ in that way. I'll say more about that towards the end. The apostle Paul tells us also when he defines love, he says that love does not act unbecomingly. It is not rude according to some translations. Now what is rudeness, boys and girls? Rudeness uh, is unseemliness. It's an expression of arrogance. If arrogance is the disposition, rudeness is sometimes uh, the, the expression of that arrogance. Rudeness tends to think chiefly of self. It's inherently selfishness. It's, it's arrogance in action, if you will. We are living in a culture that is increasingly rude to strangers. Uh, the way strangers interact with each other with intemperate language on discussion boards after an article is written. You read an article in the Wall Street Journal, or, well, it's not as bad in the Wall Street Journal, but other places, you, you read articles, and then you read the way people interact with each other in the thread below the article. And usually it's often with great rudeness in ways that they probably wouldn't speak to each other if they were in the room together for the first time meeting. Often, we are rude to people, um, and, and rude to people we have no reason to be rude to. Uh, we don't like something about a service or a product that we've purchased, maybe. And we take it out on the customer service person as though it's that, that, that it was their fault. Um, they have very little control over the policy. They're just answering the phone to handle the complaints. I've, I remember a couple times where I've gone to dinner. I was invited out to eat at a restaurant, and I wanted to crawl under the table because the people who had invited me out were treating the, the waitress rudely. Uh, and, um, you know, one time, <laughs> I'll tell you this story. One time in one of those two episodes, I, I was just so embarrassed by it. I just said, you know, I excused myself after we were done and they went outside. I said, I excused myself to go to the restroom. And then when I came out, I, I gave the waitress a $20 bill. And I said, I am sorry for my friends here. Here, I take this. <laughs> I mean, I was just, I was just really appalled uh, at, their, at, their, at their behavior. Um, one time, not to blame it just on my friends, one time I was rude uh, towards a business owner. And I felt so convicted about it on the drive home that uh, when I got home, I, I looked up the number of that business and I called the guy and I said, I was the guy who just gave you a hard time. I just want to confess to you that I, and ask for your forgiveness. I am sorry the way I spoke to you. I should not have spoken to you about that. And it, it was just over such a little thing, too. Um, I had paid to have the car detailed and they completely left the trunk, you know, uh, a mess full of junk and stuff. And it says, in, in the big scheme of life, it's such a little thing. Uh, but anyway, he graciously received uh, my apology and, and uh, granted me that forgiveness there. Um, oftentimes, people think they, are, are, they can be rude with certain people because they, they think they can get away with being rude. Notice how you often are rude to your own family, uh, but you don't treat your, your boss the way you do 
some of the members of your own household. Uh, We need to be careful about rudeness, particularly to those with whom we are closest. Children, now you must learn the practice of courtesy. And one of the best and most sanctifying ways to learn that the proving ground of your sanctification is with your siblings and your parents because those are your closest neighbors. Um, It's easier uh, around maybe your classmates or it's friends in the neighborhood, but sometimes it can be harder at home. And that is who uh, you most need to be charitable towards. Also, we have to be aware of returning rudeness with rudeness. We don't like it when we're treated rudely. And so we've often experienced where we are treated rudely and we think our response ought to be, oh yeah, (laughs) and treat them rudely in return. Um, But we should not do that. Even if you are right in the principle of the matter, it does not make it right for you to do it in a manner that is wrong. One time um, in my former subdivision that I lived in for 20 years, they had a uh, yard of the month in the spring and summer. They would do kind of yard month to try and encourage uh, people to really upkeep the appearance of the neighborhood. And there was one particular home that they were doing a particularly bad job of yard maintenance. Um, and this guy, he had a pile of dirt uh, in his lawn, in his front lawn, huge pile of dirt that he was meaning to you know, spread out in, in different projects that he was working on, but the projects were not getting done, and that pile of dirt sat uh, week after week after week after week. Finally, somebody in the middle of the night in our subdivision took the yard of the month sign and stuck it in that pile of dirt. <laughs> now, the point may have been well taken, but that was rude. <laughs> um, and actually, I felt for that household because I actually, pastorally, I knew some of what was going on there. And um, I think if people had known some of the difficulties that they were having, they might have been more sympathetic Uh, to why the yard was looking the way it was. So we need to be careful. Um, Love is generous. Um, It is not to be uh, selfish. Uh, It is not to insist. ESV says it does not insist in its own ways in 1 Corinthians 13.5. The Christian life uh, is full of wonderful paradoxes, things that seem contradictory but are not. And I think one of those is this question of the self. Um, our, our culture obsesses right now with self-identity. Uh, but the, the irony is the more you seek your own self-identity, the more you lose it. Um, it's kind of like happiness. Happiness and identity. The more you seek for identity, the more you seek for happiness, uh, the more elusive it really is. It's when you, you abandon the pursuit of happiness and you pursue God in the things that he's commanded us to do that we find happiness. Um, and, and the same with, I think, identity. The more we, we seek uh, to find our self, you know, to, you, you hear of young people who, well, they're moving to Colorado to go find themselves, you know. Um, they're not going to find themselves. You know, as one pastor said, what if you find out you're an onion? 
and you peel layer after layer until there's nothing there. Um, it's only when we follow Christ, when we take up our cross and follow him, what, the, what is the cross? Um, the cross is an instrument of execution. It's the ultimate self-denial. And when we are united to his death uh, and we follow him, there we find that we truly live. Those who die end up living. Those who try to live for themselves end up dying. You don't find yourself by looking out for yourself. But you find yourself as you die to self, as you serve, as you seek, how can I live for the kingdom? How can I live for Christ? What can I do to advance his agenda uh, before I die? And so we, we have to be aware of uh, this self-identity stuff that's going around here. Love is expressed in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he what? He gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe on him should not perish but have everlasting life. The Bible says that this is love, that one man should lay down his life for another. Uh, Philippians tells us that though Christ was rich, yet he became poor for our sakes that we might be made rich. Love also is uh, generous um, in our patience, as we've talked about patience. Love is not easily angered and provoked. Um, Love is positively expressed in patience. Love negatively expressed um, is not easily angered or irritable. Uh, Kings like Nebuchadnezzar, we we read, he was quick. To wrath. He became enraged, we're told. And Proverbs tells us uh, and warns us against hanging out with people who are given to anger. Be careful, they say, because you will become like them. In Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 17, a quick tempered man acts foolishly. A man of evil devices is hated, we're told. In Proverbs chapter 15, 1. Uh, We are told a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. In chapter 15, verse 18 of Proverbs, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but the slow to anger calms a dispute. Chapter 16, in verse 32, he who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. He who rules his spirit is greater than he who captures a city. In uh, Proverbs chapter 19, verse 11. Proverbs 19, verse 11. A man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook a transgression. In Proverbs chapter 20, verses 2 and 3. The terror of a king is like the growling of a lion. He who provokes him to anger forfeits his own life. Verse 3. Keeping away from strife is an honor. For a man, I love this next line. Line B of verse 3 says, any fool will quarrel. (laughs) Um, Chapter 21, verse 19. It is better to live in a desert land than with a contentious and vexing woman. Uh, Chapter 22 and verse 19. So that your trust may be in the Lord. No, it's not it. 
excuse me, verse 24, chapter 22. Do not associate with a man given to anger or go with a hot-tempered man or you will learn his ways and find a snare for yourself. And, and there are others. James tells us to be slow to speak, slow to anger, quick to listen. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But, Jesus commenting on that commandment says, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever says to his brother, You good for nothing, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Jesus tells us also how to deal with those who are angry with you. He says, when you are worshiping and remember that someone is angry with you, leave your offering and go and make it right with them. He says, when you're being sued, somebody wants to take you to court, go to him and seek peace and friendship with him before the court date, lest the judge find you guilty and you're thrown into jail. Now, we might ask ourselves, well, what about righteous anger? Isn't there a place for righteous anger? The Bible indeed says, be angry, but do not sin. However, we have to be suspicious about ourselves lest we justify that which is sinful. Righteous anger is to be angry at the injustice, says John MacArthur. It is to be angry against those who are um, oppressing the poor or the contradiction to the word of God. Jesus was indeed righteously angry at those who were profaning the Father's house, which he said was to be a house of worship. But when he, Jesus, was personally vilified himself, he did not become angry. Uh, MacArthur uh, tells the the story of Jonathan Edwards, uh, whose daughter had one of his daughters. He had many daughters. He had one daughter who particularly had a problem with anger. And there was a young man who wanted to be a suitor and marry her. Um, But Edwards refused the man for the sake of the man. (laughs) He didn't. He didn't feel like his daughter was ready uh, at the time. And when the man protested um, and said, but she's a Christian, Edward acknowledged that she was, but he also said, but the grace of God can dwell where no man can. John MacArthur, in his commentary, says, Do not excuse anger, saying, Well, it'll be over in a few minutes. MacArthur says, So also a nuclear bomb. Love also, Paul tells us, is not to keep a record of wrongs. The ESV says that love is not to be resentful. The New King James translates it, Thinks no evil. That is, it's a way, it's a term of bookkeeping. Um, The the Greek there means to calculate or to reckon uh, when figuring, for example, on a ledger, uh, the debts and assets. Romans chapter 4 verse 8 says that blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. That is, the Lord will, for the sake of Christ, be willing to blot out our sins and not hold them against us. In 2 Corinthians 5.19 God, we are told, was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. 
That kind of love keeps no records against us. There is no wrong recorded against us uh, because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Resentment, however, will keep a record. It keeps the books against us, and it looks for opportunities to use those records against another. Again, if I can quote John MacArthur again, MacArthur notes that love quenches wrongs rather than recording them. I'll repeat that. Love quenches wrongs rather than recording them. Chrysostom, the great preacher of the early church, Chrysostom, said that a wrong done against love is like a spark that falls into the sea and is extinguished. A love, a wrong done against love is like a spark that falls into the sea and is extinguished. We should consider our wrongs against God and how much we have been forgiven. This will give us perspective and grace to forgive the few transgressions against us. Also, we see that love rejoices in righteousness. Love that Peter commends is to be a love that is united to righteousness. Paul says that love does not rejoice in unrighteousness in the New American Standard. Um, That is, love does not rejoice in iniquity or wrongdoing or evil. Unrighteousness, uh, the literal translation for a diakia, um, love is contrary, even opposite to sin. We have to keep that in mind. Our culture wants to say, if you really were a loving church, you would affirm certain things that are sinful. But love, if it is really love, cannot affirm that which is wrong. It is opposite to the wrongdoing. God himself is love. Um, any sin, thereby, is a want of conformity to unto or transgression of God's law. So we see here that love and law go together. Love and righteousness go together. What are the two greatest commandments? The two greatest commandments in the Bible, uh, first is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second greatest commandment, is in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, that we love our neighbor as ourselves. So we see that the Ten Commandments is a summary of love. It, it is a way to summarize our love to God and our neighbor's love to one another. And so love is hand in hand with righteousness. So... <clears throat> Um, if, therefore, that Christian love is contrary to unrighteousness, then Christian love cannot rejoice in that unrighteousness. Christian love cannot rejoice in that which is against God himself. God cannot sin. God hates sin. God hates unrighteousness. God, we are told, cannot lie. Therefore, the Christian cannot rejoice or celebrate or entertain with pleasure that which is against the character and the nature of God. The problem with man is that we are alienated from God. We are in rebellion against God. And thus it is natural 
for us to take pleasure in things that are evil and unrighteous. Romans chapter 1, verse 28 to 32 says, So evil is man that man is not content with his own evil, but, quote, such things worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. That is, the, the wicked are not content in doing wickedness themselves. They want everybody else to do the wickedness. Man approves and even rejoices with those who rebel against God. But Christian love refuses to rejoice in unrighteousness. Christian love dictates that we are not to support or encourage immoral unions between man and man or a woman and a woman. Um, There are many parts of a visible church that want to declare such unions are to be celebrated. But this is contrary to true Christian love. We cannot dishonor parents and be loving. Be careful with the in-law jokes. Uh, we, we cannot rejoice in the murder of the innocent. We need to watch ourselves. Sometimes we even can fall uh, into watching a movie rooting for an illicit relationship uh, because they're the main characters. But that, of course, is not love. Love does not rejoice uh, because of envy. There are people today who actually rejoice when other people are taxed. Uh, they rejoice in that. Um, that. That people would really want others to lose out uh, of what is theirs. And, and, and you be careful with this because politicians play off of this stuff. They, they try to pit us against one another. We need to be careful in the selection of our entertainment. Too often we amuse ourselves and laugh at things for which Jesus gave his own life. We need to be careful that we not take pleasure in the sins uh, of others. Some people are restrained from fear or reputation of engaging in sin, such as debauchery themselves, um, Maybe you'll never be in a Mardi Gras parade yourself, but you take pleasure that others are rebelling against God so openly. We should mourn and grieve uh, the sin of others. Along with righteousness, love always rejoices with that which is true as well. Um, Pilate asked the question, an important question, but it may have been cynically asked, what is truth? Well, truth is the word of God. God's word is truth. Jesus is truth. Jesus said, thy word is truth. The Bible, as we said this morning, is the inerrant and infallible truth of a holy God. The scriptures cannot be broken. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And so a loving person is one who reads and values the Bible because they love the truth. We The Bible says, seek truth and do not sell it. Okay, that proverb I abuse a little bit when I want to buy a book, you know, and I (laughs) buy truth, don't sell it, I tell myself. Uh, um, The word of God is wisdom, though, and and it is of greater value than money. And, And we should invest our time and energies into knowing the scriptures. 
Just as you invest time and energy into being a good steward of your income and of money, we ought to also invest. And I know you do. You wouldn't be here tonight if you didn't. But we should let our thoughts and opinions be shaped by the Scriptures more than the culture. We have to evaluate our own thoughts in light of the Scriptures. So, kids, for example, when mom and dad ask you to do your Bible reading, they're not just wanting you to check off something off your to-do list, but they're wanting you to marinate your own thinking in, in a particular perspective and outlook, that of the Scriptures. They want you to see the world from the perspective of God and the way God views the world, because the way God views the world is reality. I also would add to that that love is willing to suffer, just as love does not rejoice in unrighteousness or falsehood, but love is willing to bear all things. Now, I know this is not a Greek lesson, but I'll get into the Greek weeds here a little bit with you, if you bear with me here. No pun intended, originally. But um, there is some disagreement. Now, this is not a disagreement between conservatives and liberals. This is a disagreement among the godly. Um, What does it mean when... Should we understand that love bears all things? Um, Some, like the translators in the NIV, think it should be interpreted as love protects. Um, John MacArthur, it's interesting, who you don't normally think of as an NIV guy, but he does actually favor that translation that, that, that the word in the Greek here, stego, should be translated to cover or protect. Uh, you have others, such as the Greek scholar Psyche Kubo, who wrote a book called The Reader's Greek-English Lexicon of the New Testament. Um, he does not agree with that. He thinks it needs to, means to bear, love bears, like a, a beast of burden. You think about a, a donkey or a mule that bears a load, and that love should be understood as bearing uh, a willingness to suffer, um, not cover or protect, uh, as MacArthur was arguing. Then you have the great 19th century systematic theologian Charles Hodge, who tries to steer a middle course, if you will, um, he, because he says the word could mean cover or protect, or it could mean to bear. Um, Hodge believes that the translation to protect might work better in this, uh, in this sense, Uh, However, Paul does use that word elsewhere, meaning to carry. So there's the debate. Now, Calvin said, took, I think, the idea of bearing. Uh, So did Edwards, because Edwards thinks that Paul often will speak of things in one letter, and he uses that same thinking in in his others as well. And, And so he doesn't argue from... Um, the, the, the Greek so much is just Scripture interpreting Scripture, and that this is Paul using this, this idea of bearing. Calvin says men are always wanting to bear, uh, men are always wanting others, excuse me, to bear us on their shoulders. But love would have us bear them upon our own, is Calvin's argument here. So the idea that love... Uh, bears all things, is, is kind of one who is willing for the sake of others uh, to carry them. Um, Edwards says to bear all things 
in his book, uh, Charity and Its Fruits, to bear all things means to bear suffering in the cause of Christ. And the reason Edward says, he says, Paul has spoken of bearing with the insults and injuries from other men when he declared love is patient and is not provoked. Um, Paul, Edwards argues that Paul would not speak for a third time about this kind of manifestation of love. He's the, he feels like to, to the idea of covering and protecting has already been dealt with um, in 1 Corinthians 13, higher up. So Edwards said that Paul, however, regularly spoke about the sufferings he endured for the sake of Christ. Edwards uh, is of that view. So if you go with that, that Christian love bears all things, that is, willingly suffers uh, for Christ. Those who are truly Christ have the spirit to suffer for Christ. We have a spirit to endure all the sufferings which duty to Christ uh, imposes upon us here. We, we, in Hebrews chapter 11, we are told by faith, Moses when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather what? To endure ill treatment. He was willing to bear with the sufferings of God's people. He was rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. You know, imagine boys and girls growing up as the son or a daughter of a king of a country and all, all the things you could have and the lifestyle you could live, but being willing to give them all up to endure with a people who are slaves in that country. Second Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10 says, Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake, says Paul, for when I am weak, then I am strong. He is willing to bear up with all these sufferings. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 22, we read, You will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. In Philippians 3.8, Paul says, More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord, for whom I have suffered or borne the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. Hebrews 10, verse 34, the author of Hebrews, for you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession, a lasting one. You endured, uh, you bore with those who were in prison for the sake of the gospel. I need to bring it to a close here. Um, again, citing Jonathan Edwards, Edwards says, If there is no such spirit to bear all things within us, then we have not given ourselves unreservedly to Jesus. Uh, Hosea, he cites Hosea chapter 2, verse 19, The giving of ourselves to Christ is compared to that of a marriage. In a marriage, we pledge ourselves exclusively and unreservedly to the other. We are not our own any longer. We belong to one another. In Romans chapter 12, we are described as a living sacrifice. We have surrendered ourselves to the altar of Christ and we bear all things for Him. A willingness to bear all things for Christ means a willingness to sacrifice 
even at times if called our own temporal and worldly interests. The rich young ruler would not sell everything he had when Jesus commanded him to do that. The man went away sad. Jesus reminded us that that, uh, ordinarily it is impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God except that the work of grace be done in that man's life. Easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, says Jesus. And so, again, concluding with Edwards. Edwards enjoins us to count the cost when we come to Christ. To quote Edwards, he says, He, therefore, that is not willing to meet this cost never complies with the terms of religion. To embrace the gospel truly means to embrace Jesus' cross and crown. Edwards, again, two more sentences, two more quotes from Edwards. He who does not receive the gospel with all its difficulties does not receive it as proposed to him. He that does not receive Christ with his cross as well as his crown does not truly receive Christ at all. Edwards acknowledges that the gospel is offered at times as a resting in him, a buying milk and wine. But he continues, he said, but also they that receive only the easy part of Christianity and not the difficult as well, at best are almost Christians. Christians.